There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are in the book of Matthew and we just prayed and we're in chapter 12, left off right around verse 39. Verse 39. So let me grab my notes here. Um, a turning point has occurred and another one is about to occur in chapter 13, but in chapter 11 and 12, the turning point is that the Jews who have had ample evidence to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, not only the miracles, his miracle birth, um, all of the wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount and John the Baptist testifying, there's just been so many reasons to believe, and the Jews for the most part have just kind of shrugged their shoulders and they're either uh, non-committal or in the case of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they are outwardly hostile, openly hostile toward Jesus. So um, that's what's been happening in chapter 11 and chapters 11 and 12. And so we are in verse uh, 38 is actually, I said 39, it's actually 38 is where we are. Um, so let me read it, and then we'll talk about chapter 12, verse 38. So I know that you're awake. Say, Amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, Amen from Zoom land, thank you for that sign. Okay, um, here we go. Chapter 12. Um, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, those are the Jewish religious leaders, said to him, Teacher, or rabbi, we want to see a sign from you. We would see a sign. In the parallel passage in Luke, they specify we want a heavenly sign. To me, I'm glad I'm not Peter, James, or John, because I would say, Oy vey, how many more signs do you need? Casting out demons, raising the dead, uh, walking on water, healing all kinds of blind eyes, paralyzed legs and limbs, restoring a hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. How many more signs do you need? But they're asking for something. Some scholars think they mean a heavenly sign, like something, a sign in the sun, moon, and stars kind of thing. Write your name in the sky so we know it's you. Some people have, have mentioned that every miracle is actually a sign that points to some aspect of his compassion or his power or his godhood even. Somebody, and I can't remember who said it in one of the sermons I listened to this week, said he could just say, okay, and do it, right? And big letters, Jesus is Lord or something. Can you imagine in the sky? But that sets up a bad precedent, doesn't it? To ask for a sign is an evidence that you don't have faith. And they've had enough signs, number one. Uh, so an evidence of unbelief, a lack of faith. One of the comment, one of the guys in the sermons I listened to said, he could just fly like Superman. How about that? But see, that wouldn't be a sign. It doesn't point to any compassion. Nobody's healed, nobody's benefit, nobody benefits from it. Um, my kids used to love hearing this, but because my son loved Superman, he does fly in Acts chapter one. Don't look at it up now, but from verses nine to 11, it's when he ascends to heaven and he literally just goes up and they're standing there watching him go without a cape, by the way. So um, what they're really saying is prove you're the Messiah. And um, 
What further proof do they need? Yeah, exactly. He's fulfilled their Old Testament prophecies, by the way, as well. Um, it's estimated, uh, I've always heard 330. Sometimes you hear 300. One commentator said 333. I thought that was an interesting number. Um, so if they, let's theoretically say he does it. He gives them a sign. You know what will happen, don't you? Do another one, right? Or when he's, they've seen miracles before, what did they say earlier in this chapter and in the last chapter? Oh, he does that by the power of Satan. So you can't win in that case, right? Some hearts and minds are so closed, you can't reach the people. So um, he answers them. They ask for a sign. Uh, verse 39, he answered a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, seeks after a sign. But none, meaning no sign, will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He means the grave. We'll come back to that. I just want to read this whole passage and then we'll talk about it. The men of Nineveh, that's where Jonah, remember, preached. And there was an unbelievable national revival there. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation of Jews and condemn it. For they, Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. What could that be? The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Who could that be? Okay, now go back to verse 39. Jesus tells them a wicked and adulterous generation wants a sign. Okay, there are churches where that's all they do is signs and wonders. And you got to have more and more and more. And um, I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying, blessed are those, John, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't need a sign. I know enough. He's the Lord of the universe. If he gives me a sign, awesome. I don't, it doesn't make me, my heart move one way or the other. But he says, they're wicked, and that's an easy word. It means evil, right? Generation wants a sign. But the other word he uses is adulterous. Adultery is sex outside of marriage, where one of the people is married to someone, and the sex they're having isn't with the person they're married to. You know what adultery is, right? You say, well, what, how did sex get in this? In the Old Testament, God is presented as Israel's husband. Israel is the bride of God the Father. And there, again and again and again, as you read the Old Testament, you just shake your head. They're constantly adulterous, meaning what? They have other gods. The pagan gods of the, those people next door, that's pretty attractive. We want to worship you, God, and Baal or one of the other ones, okay? And we'll sacrifice to you and to some pagan god. He calls that adultery. It's really spiritual, not sexual, adultery. So um, it's a metaphor for spiritual apostasy, moving away from 
your husband, which is God. As you know, in the New Testament, there's another engagement. Do you remember? Jesus is getting married. Did you know that? You say, what are you talking about? The church is the bride of Christ. He's coming back, and there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, the church, are his bride. That's why for us to be idolaters as Christians is to be a wicked and adulterous generation. So that's what he calls them. Um, let's see. He's calling them evil. It's like you have another lover. Maybe their lover is pride. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's their legal, all their rules and regulations of Judaism. But it could be themselves for the Jewish leaders that they are their own idol, um, the traditions and all of that. Anyway, um, if you've ever known someone that you've witnessed to about Christ and they just, eh, doesn't really move my heart, I don't really believe. I used to think if that person, if God, if you would only show them a miracle, I know, no, they wouldn't. They'd believe, would they? I don't think so. I mean, and there certainly have been people that have seen miracles and have believed. But Jesus has done thousands of miracles, right? We were, we were earlier, either last week or the week before, there was, he healed them all. Remember all the crowds that were following him? All means all. That's a lot of miracles. How many of those people ended up believing in him? The crowds in uh, Passion Week when he gets crucified yell, crucify him. For the most part, yes, some believe, most did not. Miracles don't make somebody believe uh, necessarily. Okay, so he says to them, you're not getting a sign. Uh, you're wicked, you're adulterous, no sign will be given you except, he says, I do have one sign for you. What he's really saying is, I am the sign, and you've missed that. So I'll tell you the one sign you're going to get that's tangible. Just as uh, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. It's a short book. I can't remember, four, five, six chapters, something like that. We studied it in this Bible study maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Interesting book. Um, so he's going to get, he's going to say, you're going to get the same sign that the contemporaries of Jonah got. And he's going to make an analogy between Jonah being swallowed by the fish, which is sort of like being dead, right? And then being resurrected on the third day, he gets spit out onto the beach somewhere. Um, okay. So um, Jonah was delivered from certain death inside a large fish. By the way, I think King James has sea monster here for fish, which I love. Um, we don't, by the way, it doesn't ever say it was a whale. It's a great fish. It's a sea monster. It's a fish. Who knows? Might, have been some, might be some sea creature that's extinct now. Who knows? Um, there have been stories of people at sea swallowed by fish, regurgitated, and they lived. In one case, I remember reading when we studied Jonah, a, a guy got swallowed by a whale, got um, vomited out or came out of the fish somehow, and he was okay, and his skin was bleached lighter from the stomach bile inside the fish. I don't want to make anybody throw up here because we've got cookies later. Um, 
So uh, Jonah chapter 2 talks about Jonah being in the heart of the earth. Before we're done with Jonah, I want to show you the comparison between Jonah and Jesus. And it's more than just the going in the fish third day, he's out. Going in the grave third day, he's out. Um, okay, he's going to say to them, the resurrection is the sign for you guys. Definitely dead. The Romans confirm that he's dead. On the third day, I will rise from the grave. That's the sign. The story of Jonah is interesting because God tells the brief overview. You probably all know the story. God tells Jonah, you're my prophet. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. They're very sinful. Jonah, if you were with us when we studied that book, I said, I think Jonah was a racist. He hates the Ninevites. He's Jewish. They're not. Gentiles. A Jewish prophet going to preach to Gentiles? Get me another assignment. God says, go over there, and Jonah goes over there. Goes the other way. Remember? I'll just run away from God. Wrong idea. Jonah gets on a boat and goes in the opposite direction, and he uh, is on the boat, and there's a, a tremendous storm at sea. Do you remember? And the sailors wake him up and go, hey, who are you? Why is this happening? Is this something to do with you? They kind of sense, and they're pagans, God's mad at somebody here. We're pagans. Is it you? And he admits, this is all because of me. And Jonah does an interesting thing. He, he sacrifices himself. He says, if you guys want to live, throw me overboard, which normally you would admit in a storm, you're not going to tread water through the holes, you're going to die. But at least it'll save you guys. It's, an, um, it's admirable in his life that he says, throw me overboard. And guess what? They do, right? And a fish swallows Jonah. Don't think coincidence. Think God called the fish. Go get him. I'll tell you when to spit him out, right? To me, it's clear. Can God do that? Absolutely. Later, Peter asks Jesus, do you remember? How are we going to pay the tax they want? Jesus says, go to the Sea of Galilee and put your fishing rod in, not pole, and the first fish you, come, you pull out will have a coin in it, which will be the tax for you and me. Remember that? Come on. God called the fish and went, there's a coin on the bottom at these coordinates. Go get it and wait for a hook at this point. I love it. Okay, so Jonah says, I'll take the rap. I'll take the punishment. So does Jesus. But Jonah was in disobedience to God. That's why this happened. Jesus is in total obedience. We'll come back to that. After three days, yeah, he comes out. Okay, some people have had a hard time with the words. Look at them in... Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, meaning in the grave. Wait, time out. Three days and three nights. There are people that take this and say he had, the crucifixion had to be Wednesday, not Friday. But we know it was Friday because it was the day of preparation right before the Sabbath. 
Okay, so there are there is a rabbi. There's many actually, but I'm going to give you one example. Eliezer ben Azariah, who writes about 100 AD that for the Jews, a portion of a day, even a small portion, counts as a whole day. So Jesus is crucified on Friday. They rush to bury him, if you read John's gospel, get him in the ground, in the grave, before sundown, which is the start of a new day. So he's in the grave, part of, very little, Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday morning, and he rises Sunday morning. You with me? To the Jews, that would be a part of one day is a whole day, so that's three days, etc. Wanted to just throw that out there. Uh, let's see. In Esther 4, she says... She's told, go and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. But on the third day, she goes and sees the king having fasted, part, portion of each day, same kind of thing. Um, yeah, okay. So the Ninevites are pagans. Christianity ends up going mostly to the Gentiles, same kind of thing. Uh, but the Jews will believe. Keep in mind, the Ninevites have no... Old Testament, no Moses, no David, none of that. And they repent just hearing a godly prophet speak with the Spirit of God. They repent because uh, Jonah ends up obeying and going to Nineveh. They repent, a national revival. These guys, the Pharisees asking for a sign, do have the scriptures. They should have known better. They knew about the miracles. They knew about their predictions about the Messiah. They just have very hard hearts. That'll come up in chapter 13, by the way. Um, let's see. We'll, we'll get back to the Queen of Sheba because that's next. Uh, Jesus preached and prophesied to the Jews, and his message spread all over the world. He preached for about three years, and his preaching goes on today through the Word of God. Jonah preached 40 days. That's it and to one little Gentile area. But it goes to show you what God can do where you wouldn't think he can. Jonah ends up pouting that they repented. And now you're not going to kill him. I told them all you're going to kill him if they don't repent. Now they repented. I knew it. You're Mr. Nice Guy. And he's, he basically tells God, why don't you just kill me? It's just a bad attitude from Jonah. Jesus perfect attitude. Jesus dies for the sins of the whole world, not one little country, uh, and that salvation continues going on. Jesus has greater love and compassion. He didn't love the Ninevites. Jonah didn't. Jesus did. Uh, we already talked about that. Okay, the Queen of Sheba. Let's talk about that. So he has told them, my sign is going to be, I'm going to rise from the dead. Uh, equating the big fish with the earth, equating Jonah with Jesus. Um, the men of Nineveh, verse 41, before we get to the queen of the south, verse 41, the men of Nineveh, Gentile nation, will stand up at the judgment with this Jewish generation at that time who's rejected the Messiah, and they, the Gentiles, will condemn or judge in some way the Jews this would be a huge insult to these Pharisees. Gentiles are going to judge us. Are you crazy? But he's not crazy. He's right. Why, Jesus? Look at the middle of verse 41. For they, Gentiles from Nineveh, who were very sinful, repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
the implication is, and you guys should be too. Because, look at the last part of verse 41. And now, something greater than Jonah is here. Who does he mean, class? means himself. Far greater than Jonah. Jonah was a man. That, Jesus is the son of God in human flesh. Jesus does miracles. Jonah does no miracles. Jo, jo, we, as we already said, Jonah's ministry is much, much smaller and for a shorter time. Um, okay, so that's why. Because they're gonna, you guys are going to be condemned by some Gentiles who did hear the message and repent. They, the Gentiles, by the way, had very little information, just what Jonah gave them. And I can imagine Jonah having an attitude going, he's going to blow you up. He's going to wreck you all. You better repent. Okay, you're not going to anyway. See you later. I don't know how hard he tried. Jesus tries hard, doesn't he? Um, okay, so now the, verse 42 sounds like an unrelated story, and it's not. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, she comes from the Arabian Peninsula. You say, wait, I know the general area of stuff in the Middle East. It's not that far away. And it isn't. It's not like saying she came from Beijing, China, or she came from St. Louis or something, right? Long journey. But to them, Israel, the, that was the world. The outer parts of the earth was like you get into those Arabian countries way over there because they don't have planes, trains, automobiles, which is a movie, by the way. Anyway, uh, the queen of the south will rise at judgment. She's going to judge you guys as well. By the way, she also is a Gentile. Judging the Jews? Why? We're the chosen people. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon. That's King Solomon, David's son. Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. In Israel, they had three offices, if you will. Prophet, priest, king. Okay? The rule was, if, wait now, you're a priest, you can't be a king. You can't be all three. It just wasn't allowed. Jesus is a prophet. He's a priest. In fact, he's a priest because he offers the sacrifice, and he's the sacrifice himself. You can add that one, right? He's the Lamb of God. Prophet, priest, king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings in Revelation, right? Okay, so what about Solomon? One more thing. The Messiah is supposed to be a, listen, son of David, right? Descended from David. Guess who Solomon is? A son of David who was a king. <clears throat> Considered at, his, at the time the richest and wisest man on planet earth. The queen of Sheba, this Arabian, non-Jew, pagan, Gentile, <clears throat> hears about Solomon's wealth and his wisdom. She travels all that way to meet Solomon. When she does and hears his wisdom, she ends up praising his, Solomon's, Jewish God and takes that information back to wherever she is from in Arabia. Solomon was a great king. Solomon built the temple. You remember? Because David couldn't build it because he had blood on his hands. Solomon built the temple. Jesus built the greater temple. 
He said, your bodies are all temples because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, so he's saying, I'm greater than a prophet. I'm greater than a beloved king. Keep in mind, let's go to the top of the food chain for prophets, shall we? For the Jews, it was Moses and Elijah. In chapter 17 of the book of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus take three disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember? Just the inner three, Peter, James, John. And there, he just starts glowing, and Moses and Elijah show up. The Jews referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. Paul in the New Testament calls the Old Testament, the law and the prophets say this and that. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Moses represents the law. He's the one that got the law and gave it to the Jews. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. They show up and they're talking with Jesus. Do you remember? And Peter, as usual, sticks his foot in his mouth and says, oh, I get, this is my paraphrase, I get it. Wow. No wonder you're glowing. You're equal to Moses and Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament. And God probably goes, right? So a cloud comes down. This is chapter 17. Now we don't have to study it because I'm telling you now. A cloud comes down and envelops them all. And the three, Peter, James, and John, are on the ground freaking out with fear. And a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is singular. Not these are, Peter, not Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. This is singular, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him or listen to him. The cloud goes away. No Moses, no Elijah. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, just Jesus. Therefore, that was another way of saying he's better than all the prophets. He's better than everybody in the Old Testament put together. Okay. Solomon's a son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Um, that's why they're going to get condemned because you're in the last chapter we saw you're responsible for the amount of spiritual light you've been given. The more you know, the more you're responsible to react to it and believe it. The queen of Sheba knew very little, but she believed. The Ninevites, very little information, light, they believed, they repented. So the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this this generation and condemn it. This is even worse for the Jews because it's a woman. Not in that culture. No woman's going to judge a man. He's saying they're holier than you are. You got way more information and you don't believe. She came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Um, do we want to go there now? Yeah, I think we do. Um, keep your finger in Matthew and go in the Old Testament to 1 Kings. If you can't find it, it's before Chronicles, uh, to the left of Psalms and, um, and Proverbs and Isaiah and all that. 1 Kings, if you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A in the class today. 1 Kings chapter 10. I just want to show you one thing. This is the Queen of Sheba, hears about the fame of Solomon. Um, so she comes with a bunch of hard questions, verse th uh, two. Um, she comes with a big caravan, camels. She ends up giving him, by the way, tons of wealth. And he was already crazy wealthy. Um, 
uh, the food on his table. She said to the king, um, verse 7, I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told to me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be, happy your officials, etc. Here it comes. That's all earthly. Watch. Verse 9. This is a Gentile, not a Jew. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel, meaning he's sovereign, because he can make that choice. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Remarkable faith from a Gentile lady, don't you think? No wonder she responded to the light she was given. No wonder she's going to judge them uh, come judgment day uh, at the end of the world. Okay. Um, now back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, pretty good. Verse 43. Nope. Yeah, 43. Again, this sounds like it comes from left field. It's all tying in. Both of the previous examples, the Ninevites and the queen of Sheba, Gentiles. Now, what happens when you try to remain neutral on this Jesus guy? That's what he's going to talk about now, because that's what they're trying to do. When an impure spirit, that's a demon, comes out of a person, meaning they were demon-possessed. We'll make it Harold over here again. He's demon-possessed, but for some reason the spirit comes out of him. Got the picture? He's been cast out, let's say. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. The Jews believed that demons loved arid, dry, deserty, desolate places. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it says it goes through arid places here, seeking rest and doesn't find it. Remember, a spirit is, I'm going to use a fancy word here and I'll explain it, non-corporeal. Corporeal. Corporeal means flesh and blood. This is corporeal. Non-flesh and blood is a spirit that does not have flesh and bones. Remember Jesus rises, Luke 24, they think they're seeing a ghost or a spirit, and he says, calm down, boys, fear not, handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. By the way, you notice what he didn't say, flesh and blood. Why? Shed his blood on the cross. Okay, a spirit is non-corporeal. They, they exist in a different realm. They don't have a physical body. They can appear to have a physical body. It's not a real physical body. So that's why they really want to possess somebody's body so that they can control things in the physical realm more and freak people out with a demon-possessed girl or boy or man or woman or whatever. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest, and it doesn't find it. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to the house I left. By house, he means the body. Okay? When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, meaning the Holy Spirit's not in there. God's not in there. It's just a human being. But it is swept clean and put in order because somebody cast the demon out. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, seven other evil spirits, demons, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. Now the guy's got eight. 
if you're doing the math, right? Get your calculator, six, one plus seven. Okay. Um, and the final condition of that person, and the person is emblematic of Israel, who Jesus has been casting demons out of people like crazy, and they're not willing to let the Holy Spirit come in and set instead. If the Holy Spirit comes in, no way can a demon possess you or me because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and doesn't want a roommate, basically. But if you've been blessed, but you just don't want Jesus and you're unprotected, who knows what can happen with demons? Demons can't possess Christians, but they can oppress, tempt, persecute, you know, do all kinds of stuff from the outside. Demon possession is the absolute control taking over somebody's body. The story, I've never seen one, but I've heard demon-possessed people with this voice talk with a whole different voice and sound completely different, act different, you know, all kinds of strange things. Okay, I don't want to freak you out, but Halloween's already passed. Okay, um, so in other words, react to Jesus neutrally. You might end up worse than before. Number one, because you've been shown all this spiritual light and you didn't respond to it. But number two, Satan is now welcome to come in if you're not willing to put God where he ought to be in your heart. So uh, why does this tie in? Because it refers to the Jews who didn't re repent as the Queen of Sheba did, didn't repent when they heard the news like the Ninevites did it's going to be worse for them. Not only spiritually, and that's what he's talking about, but even physically, within 40 years of when he's saying this, give or take a year or two, the Romans are going to march on Jerusalem and burn the city, tear it down, kill half a million Jews, take some as slaves. Everybody else gets dispersed around the globe, and they burn the temple down because no more need for a temple. Hasn't been one in 2,000 years, just about. Okay, so... If you've ever had a car and you didn't make the payments, you know, they come and repossess the car. This is demon repossession, in a sense, worse than before. Um, so, as I said, he, the devil can oppress us and tempt us and afflict us, but greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, God, than he that is in the world. Don't fear God. Um, do we need to go there now? No, we'll do that later. Okay. Verse 45. No, we already did that. This and the last sentence of, of verse 45. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. He means the Jews of his time that said no thanks to the whole Jesus thing. Pretty scary. It's pr really pronouncing a doom on them that they already resent him. Now they're just going to hate his guts even worse. In grace, may I say, what happens is they crucify him, he rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, and the Christian church begins where? Right there, in grace. Why do you say in grace? Because they've already rejected him. He could have said, boys, everybody leave Israel and just go to, you go to Europe and you go to India and you go to China and you go to South America and you go to Africa. In grace, God waits 40 years to destroy them, giving them extra, extra, extra time in case there's people that are still undecided about Jesus or young ones coming up who didn't know. Verse 46, again, sounds like 
Matthew's just stringing stories along. They don't have anything to do with each other. It all ties in. Watch. This is a surprising one. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Pause right there. Not now, but in a second, I'm going to take you to the Gospel of Mark to show you additional information Matthew doesn't give us, which will make this a lot clearer, I promise. So who is this? Jesus' mother. What's her name? It's the Virgin Mary, right? She's no longer a virgin. How do you know that? She, he's got brothers. Further in this chapter, I'll show you, he's got sisters. There's at least seven kids in the family. Jesus, four brothers, and we're given his names, their names, I mean, in a second, and at least two sisters. How do you know that? Because he says sisters. It could be nine sisters. I don't know. Maybe it's a really big family. We don't know their names, but the brothers we know. I'll come back to that. So here comes his mother and his brothers. They're standing outside. Is there symbolism there? I think there is. Um, they want to speak to him. We're going to come back to verse 7, but let's, let's do 8, 9, uh, 48, 49, and 50, and then I'll show you the Mark passage. He replied to them, to him, the person saying, hey, you know, your, your mom and your brothers are outside. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 49, pointing to his disciples, gesturing is what the word means, to the people listening to him who believe in him, pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother did you notice what relation he left out brother sister mother not father because his father is who god you're not jesus's father you're his sister you're his brother um, Mary was his mother in a humanly sense, in a human sense. Okay, now I want to go to Mark 3, and then we're going to take that whole passage apart. So keep your finger in Matthew and go to Mark chapter 3. And I hope I find in my notes where the heck the verse is. <laughs> there it is, starting in verse 20. Mark chapter 3, pick it up in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered. I'm in Mark 3.20. And a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Translation, it is so packed in there with people you can't even move. There's so much commotion, so busy going. People are so excited to be with Jesus, they believe. Verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. He is, King James, I think, says he's beside himself. You ever heard that saying before? He's just beside himself. Um, the, the mother of Jesus noticed no father. Why? Joseph's already dead by now, almost certainly. Uh, every scholar believes he died pretty young. But mom, Mary, who should know better, because an angel spoke to her, told her, this is who your son's going to be. Um, and his brothers, the four of them, Simon, Moses, I'll show, uh, Simon, Joseph, Jude, and James. Sorry, not Moses. Um, so 
Um, let's see. Um, okay, so that I wanted you to see that in Mark. Stay in Mark for with me now. They think he's out of his mind. Because, come on, you're one of the family. A prophet's not honored in his own land and his own territory, right? He's making some audacious claims. <clears throat> They're starting to wonder, is he starting to lose it? I'm going to judge the living and the dead, he said earlier in this book. Okay, notice that's Mark 3. Stay in Mark 3. A, a couple of other things happen. The teachers of the law come down, verse 22. They accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But look at verse 31, same chapter. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call to him. A crowd was saying, your mother, who's my mother and brother? It's the same story in two parts. The reason they come there is because they think he's nuts. He's blown a gasket. He's out of his mind. Now go to John, two books to the right. Go take a right past Luke. Go to John 7. Let's talk about his brothers, and then we'll come back to Matthew to talk about his brothers too. John chapter 7, verse 3. Oh, verse 2. When the Feast of a Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, John 7, verse 2. Jesus' brothers, verse 3, said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure, you want to be famous, Jesus, acts in secret. Since you're now doing these things, which the word can be translated, if you're doing these things, since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if you think I'm making stuff up, look at verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. In a way, you can't blame them. They've lived with him. They've played games, tag football with him. They've whatever. But he's always been a little unusual. How do you know that? Because he never sinned. Show me a brother, a kid, a teenager, a five-year-old that never sinned. You've got to be a little unusual, in a good way, but unusual. Brothers, there's some jealousy there, maybe. They don't believe in him. Okay, so we can leave John and go back to uh, Matthew now, if you will. Matthew chapter 12. Um, okay. Uh, oh, I forgot. I'm so sorry. Go, go back to Mark. This is my first day on the job, and I'm a little nervous because I've never taught a Bible study before. Mark chapter 3 again. Sorry, the teacher messed up. Mark 3, I wanted you to see verse 31 to 35. Mark 3, there's verse 31 to 35. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That is the same passage, isn't it? No, there's nothing there that isn't in Mark, uh, that isn't in Matthew. My bad. Sorry about that. Okay. What's going on here? Is he shunning his family? No. Okay, but what's going on here? First of all, verse 47, someone says, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. The common expectation of the crowd would be, oh, wow. He's going to make a big deal about the Virgin Mary. After all, we're supposed to pray to her, aren't we? No. Isn't there a prayer to Mary in the Bible? No. 
Are there prayers to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Yes. Prayers to Mary? No. Can't pray to a human being. If we are to worship Mary as the Catholics believe, if they're right, then this is a golden opportunity for Jesus to say, who's here? My, my mother, the Virgin Mary? Everybody, make way for the Queen of Heaven. That's the Catholic name for her. The co, listen to this, co-redemptrix. That's what the Catholics call Mary, the co-redeemer. What? Biblical? No. What does he say instead? Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? It may sound like he's shunning them. Listen, at the cross, he takes care of Mary. After the cross, guess who believes? All four brothers. James writes the book of James. Judas, or Jude, his brother, writes the book of Jude. James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. They end up believing. He appears in 1 Corinthians, we learn, specifically to James, who it's thought is the oldest brother besides Jesus, to say, here I am. It's real, after the crucifixion, after his death. Okay, he's not dissing his parents, but he is saying, teaching something that is true for all of us, and that's this. Look around the room. Those of you on Zoom, look at the screen. See the names? Jane and Roy, Bob Nelson, Diane Davis, iPad, that's an interesting name, um, Ronald's, Ronald's iPad, Benji, Andrea. Listen, see those names? Look around this room. These are your, listen, brothers and sisters, not biologically, probably, but spiritually. And he's saying here, the spiritual relationship is way higher, in a higher on a higher plane than the physical is. Don't diss your parents and your real sister and your real brother or whatever. We got two sisters attending Bible study here. Love your family. The Bible, one of the commandments is what? Honor your father and mother. Paul says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right or good. However, the spiritual relationship is trumps the physical relationship. Some of you will agree that you're closer with some Christians than you are with some blood relatives, sons, daughters, uh, brothers, sisters, parents, whatever the cousins, whatever the case may be. It's true for me in some cases. Um, who is my mother? Who is my, he's saying, who's my real family? Especially because they don't believe and they're coming to take him away, the mom and the brothers, because they think he's lost it, right? The real relationship is the spiritual one. Why is that, Joe? Because number one, it's beautiful because you now have millions of brothers and sisters all over the world. My family, we went to Egypt my wife and I, to see our son who was studying there. We went to a Christian church, Coptic Christian church in Egypt, watched a mass in Arabic, I think. I didn't get a single word out of it, but I was just thinking over and over. This is mind-blowing. I don't know these people. They don't know me. I'm going to see these people in heaven. They're my sisters, my brothers. Amazing. Halfway around the world in a different language. Jet lag besides. Anyway, um, Okay, um, now I want you to look at uh, another verse. We're going to look at a lot of verses about this. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
the fleshly ties don't take precedence over the spiritual ties. They are higher. Oh, we got to take our break. All right, let's do that now. And then we'll come back and we'll look at Luke 11 um, and uh, another passage about Mary. Let's take our two minute break. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know if you're here. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're all eating cookies here and you wish you had one, don't you? Anyway, okay, now I want you to look in a math, Matthew chapter, Matthew 13, next chapter over. Go to verse 55 with me. Matthew 13, verse 55. The 53 says when he finishes the parables, he moves on. He comes to his hometown, begins teaching the people in their synagogue, and they're amazed. Notice what they say. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Verse 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? Technically, what's the answer to that question? No. It's God's son. Joseph isn't really his father. But anyway, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, here they are, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, James who wrote the book of James. Aren't all his 56 sisters, plural, with us? No names. Big family, at least seven kids in the family. Four brothers, two sisters, and Jesus, or more. When then, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Isn't that odd? Because he's one of them. Come on, you're not, you know better than we are. Um, now, now I want you to go to Luke 11, just to hammer this home. I am, uh, I went to Catholic church until I was 18 years old and um, prayed to Mary and saw statues of Mary and people offering candles to Mary and kissing her feet and on and on and on. Okay. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Luke 11, verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you, or the breasts that gave you nursing. You got the picture? She's saying publicly, Blessed is your mother, Mary. Again. Jesus is going to reply. It's a golden opportunity to tell us to worship Mary, pray to Mary, if that's what we're supposed to do. He replied, blessed rather, meaning you're wrong, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Chance to honor Mary. Listen, Mary was chosen of all the women of the world to be the Messiah's, to, to birth the baby that is the Messiah. It's awesome. She must have been an amazing woman. We'll meet her in heaven. Are you supposed to worship her or pray to her? No. Okay, go back to Matthew with me. Um, I want you to see something else. Um, by the way, the Catholics say, Catholics believe in the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. She never had sex with her husband. They never had any kids. Where's all the brothers and the sisters coming from? Catholics say, well, that's cousins. Whatever is what I say. Um, he had brothers and sisters. They want to speak to him. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Um, okay, I want to take apart verse 50. Who, who is my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers, meaning you as well. You weren't there, neither was I. 
We're his family, right? Okay, look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my family, my brother, my sister, my mother. Well, if you're astute, you might ask, what do you mean? What's the will of my Father in heaven? Go to John chapter 6. He's going to tell you. The beautiful thing about the Bible is, although it's 66 books written by 40 authors over a period of 1,500-ish years on three continents in three languages, it's one cohesive message. And it's integrated, meaning the answer, sometimes you got to go to John or you go to Luke or you go to Mark like we're doing now, right? Go to John chapter 6 and look at verse uh, look at, pick it up in verse 38. For I have come down, this is Jesus talking, red letter. I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, the Father. Well, Jesus, tell us, what is the will of the Father? Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. Here it comes, verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What's the Father's will? Believe in Jesus. I don't want Jesus. I just want you, God. What do you want me to do? If there was a voice, it would say, believe in my Son. Read the Bible, right? Not to the exclusion of God the Father. He's very important. But it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the bridge between men and women and God the Father who are separated because of sin. If you take care of the sin problem, he becomes the stairway to heaven, if you will, Jacob in the book of Genesis. Okay. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, Jesus' closest relatives are all Christians. And it's you. It's me. Family. If Jesus had a fridge, your picture would be on it. Must be a really big fridge, but regardless, right? Um, okay, we're going to dive into chapter 13 right now. Uh, what's going on in chapter 13 is um, there's been a rejection of Jesus by the official Jewish leaders and most of the Jewish public. He still has a big following, but the official position is he's evil. Stay away from that guy. Got the picture? From now on, Jesus changes his teaching style. Instead of spelling it out like he has been, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he just spells it out. He's just been spelling it out no more. Now, parables. Everything's parables. You're going to see the, the apostles asking him, why so many parables? Why are you doing that? Okay, what's a parable? The word means to throw something alongside of. You say, what does that mean? A parable, listen, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's throwing alongside of some heavenly truth, an earthly truth that we know, and comparing it so we understand it. Um, parables tend to not have proper names. It's not, there was a man named John and a man named Philip and a woman named Louise, and they went here and did this. It's not that. It's usually a man had two sons, no names. It's just a story. A man went out to sow seed. 
Okay. So parables are, it's in the Old Testament that the, I'll show you later, that the Messiah will teach in parables. And by doing that, it's a twofold thing. It's a way of speaking in code. You ever watch spy movies? There's a way of speaking in code where he can teach in parables. Those that are believers will get it for the most part or be explained. He'll explain the parables to them. Those that aren't believers that are hearing won't get it at all. It'll go right over their heads. He's hiding the truth, veiling it from the unbelievers, revealing it to the believers, all in the same story, ingenious teaching method. Um, it, a parable is an analogy in the form of a story. They don't recognize him as king or, or the one with great wisdom or a prophet or a priest or certainly not the Messiah. So he's going to hide the truth in veiled language using parables. Um, Quickly, and you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 78. I'm going there now, so you don't have to, but you can if you want to. Psalm 78, verse 2 says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. Uh, and it goes on from there. Okay. But there's another passage, and that's uh, in Isaiah. We'll come to that later. Okay, so let's dive into this story. Parables are also little riddles and that kind of thing as well. Um, yeah, we already This discourse is called uh, The Parables About the Kingdom, and there's a bunch of them strung together here. Uh, we talked about that. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 13. That same day big change. Because of the rejection, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea or the lake, Sea of Galilee. Symbolic? Yes, out of the house. Old Testament, you know how they talk about Israel? The house of Israel. He's going outside the house now, and he's going to the sea. In the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament, the sea is a symbolic, symbolic word for the Gentiles, okay? He's kind of rejecting Israel as they've rejected him. Goes out of the house. Most scholars think it's Peter's house, which was right on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And he sits by the lake. Verse 2, Woodstock occurs. Huge crowd. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. So if you can picture it, they're pressing up against him. He's backing up to the shore. He says, Peter, pull the boat around. I'm going to teach from the boat using the boat as a pulpit. Nice backdrop with the lake behind me. Good acoustics from the bouncing off. The sound does bounce off water really well. And they won't press into me. But it's symbolic. I'm out in the sea now. I've left the house. Uh, a lot of scholars mentioned that. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> He's not teaching in the synagogue much because the doors have been closed. Open air church now is what it's time for. Okay. People are standing on the shore. He's sitting. That's the normal position of a rabbi teaching. Verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables. Here comes the first one. Saying, 
And we'll read the whole parable, then we'll talk about it. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. That's one of two ways in the Bible. The other one is, um, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I tell you, he who has ears, let him hear. Both mean the same thing. Listen up. That was really important. You say, well, you know, that's nice. And if I ever plant a vegetable garden or something, I'll remember, or grass in my front yard, I'll remember this, but I don't need an agricultural lesson now. Is that what it is? No. Now, usually this is expositional Bible study, meaning we go from verse one to verse two to verse three. We go in order. We're going to go out of order now for a very good reason, because for once you don't have to rely on, does Joe really know what he's talking about here? Because I'm sure you have questions, right? Jesus explains what everything is in this parable. So we're going to skip down. We'll come back, but go down to verse 18. Same chapter, 13. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. So we don't have to guess. He's going to tell us. Verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Now go back to verse 3. A farmer is sowing seed, okay? The normal way of this would be done in those days, they don't have fancy machinery. A farmer would strap on his back a big bag full of seeds. Normally, the ground would be plowed first clear away the weeds, rocks, and the farmer would walk and cast the seed out in an arc motion as he's walking. Got the picture? Not every seed grows, but you're just throwing out seed. Some of it will grow, some of it won't. As a matter of fact, there are four types of soil mentioned here. Did you notice that? Three out of the four end up with zero crop. Did you notice that? You can't take a parable too literally. What do you mean? Some people have said, oh, see, that means for every four people you witness to, one will believe, three won't. You can't make a parable walk on all fours, if you will, and make it too uh, literal. Okay, so he's casting out seed. The seed, Jesus is going to tell us, is the word of God, the gospel message, if you will. Um, And, well, let's read the rest of, starting in verse 18. Um, let's see the, the seed. Yeah. Verse 20, 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
The seed falling among the thorns, type three, refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So now I'll go back to chapter 13, the early part. There's the different types of seeds, uh, sorry, the different types of soils. In this case, the sower is the Lord. Okay, got the picture? He's sowing seed, but it doesn't end there because in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, you know what Jesus says to his disciples and to all of us? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know what he's saying? Put the bag on your shoulder, not literal seeds, the seed of the gospel, and spread it out among the people you know, your neighbor, the people you work with, you go to school with, your old friends from high school, or maybe go on a mission trip to Kenya and preach the gospel there. Cast the seeds out. He wants them to know they're not all going to grow. Some of them won't. These are This is really the parable, not of the sower, not of the seeds. It's really the parable of the soils. Because that's the, the, the seed stays the same, the sower stays the same. It's the soil. Is it ready or not, if you will? Soil number one, verse four. Some of it fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. That's all he says. What he says in verses uh, 18, uh, yeah, the person doesn't understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. You see that? Verse 19, uh, 19 of the same chapter. Okay, what's going on here? There would be pathways. They don't have sidewalks. They don't have roads, really. They have roads, but they're not paved. Walking paths would be unbelievably compacted soil because thousands of feet all day long and animals and carts are on it. That land would never, where the path is, would never get plowed. It would never get watered by hand. Rain would fall on it, but it would be almost like cement. This is the person that has a hard heart and it's hard to penetrate it. Not impossible for God, but generally this person hears the gospel and it, the soil doesn't absorb the seed. It stays on the uh, surface, if you will. Some fell along the path and birds came and ate it up. In the Bible, the, the uh, birds are emblematic often of Satan who can't wait to grab the seed of the gospel away before the person can believe it. It's the person's fault for having a hard heart, if you will, right? Um, okay, so uh, I don't want to miss anything here. I've got so many notes. Um, let's see. By the way, the crop that's supposed to come is when the seeds grow, plants make what? Other seeds, right? An apple tree, let's say that's what it was, produces a bunch of apples. What's inside of an apple? A bunch of seeds. Theoretically, some of them fall to the ground, and guess what? You get another apple tree or another whatever it may be. Okay. Um, Israel in the Bible was the vineyard, the fig tree, or the olive tree. But now uh, he's sowing seed in fresh fields, if you will. 
we as we're sowing should not judge oh don't even talk to that guy he's a hell's angel that's hard soil just move on you know what you never know would you have witnessed to saul of tarsus as he was coming around trying to kill christians i would say you better stay away from that guy you never know we can't judge the soil we're supposed to cast the seed. But he wants you to know there's four reactions. Reaction number one, the person is so hardened, they're not really listening, they're not open. Maybe the, the uh, pride is too strong there. Um, birds obviously are unwelcome antagonists to farmers, aren't they? That's why there's scare crows, to scare the birds away. Um, they're gonna, um, there's stories of, Farmers sowing seeds, casting them out, and the birds have learned when that guy does that motion, he's casting out seeds, they would follow him, the birds, to pick up seeds where they could, where the soil was hard. So it might be stubbornness, might be pride, might be uh, doubt. Proverbs says, a fool hates knowledge or instruction. He despises wisdom. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is the irresponsive, uh, no response, indifferent, hard-hearted person. Um, okay. Verse five and six, the stony places, and that's not Haight-Ashbury for those of you that lived in the hippie era. Stony means something else here, rocky. Verse five, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. In Israel, there's places, my brother lives in Texas, but outside of Austin, where this is the case. It looks like really nice soil, and you put a shovel in this dirt, and you get down about that far, and ding, there's a whole limestone shelf of rock that you can't tell by looking. And so this is the shallow person. With only that much soil, the sun beating down on it would make the soil very warm. So the seeds might grow. Let's see what happens. Uh, some, verse 5, fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. This is the person that says, praise Jesus. Yes, I believe. I really do. But verse 6, when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. In other words, it looked like, yeah, I'm going to go to church from now on. Hey, Harold, you haven't been to church in a year and a half. Yeah, kind of, kind of done with that now. Kind of grown beyond that. It, he was all excited a year and a half ago. Not anymore. Um, a shallow faith. It never took root. Um, Ezekiel says, uh, calls it a heart of stone, a superficial receiving a lack of depth of the gospel, of the gospel, shallow faith. Um, but if there's the least bit of affliction or trouble, that's the sun coming up, plants get scorched, people, these people move on. Forgetting that Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, unfortunately. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Very short. What's going on here? The soil wasn't prepared. Growing in the soil were thorns, weeds, okay, which choke out the good seed. What are the weeds? What are you saying that is? That's the cares of this life, right? They, they have... Uh, Priorities that don't make Christianity the number one thing. 
I've got to earn a living. I've got my career. I have, I work out. I've got all these things that I do. Nothing wrong with all those things, but that's more important to me. I don't want to commit the time to God for church kind of thing. Um, let's see. And he's going to talk about parables when we get through this, by the way. So it's, it's among thorns which grow and choke the plants out. So this is soil that might be too fertile. Got all kinds of other stuff growing in it. You know anything about a garden? If you have a plot of land full of weeds, you don't just go, I'm going to plant some tomatoes here. You got to get rid of the weeds first, right? It's a priorities thing. This person has other priorities. Jesus is like number seven in the top 10. That's no good. You got to be number one. Um, okay. Uh, they notice that they choke out the plants. There's something competing with the seed for the preeminent place in this person's life. They're too concerned with worldliness. Um, interesting verse. By the way, this can be wealthy people, successful people. It can also be, surprisingly, very poor people who are always so worried about money and food and they just can't get past that. Listen to Proverbs 38 and 9. The, the psalmist, uh, the, the writer of Proverbs says, probably Solomon, give me neither poverty nor riches. I just want to be in the middle. Feed me with the food that's my portion. Just meet my needs, God, so that I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And that I will not be impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. So even the poor people can be in this category. Uh, Matthew 19, 23 says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, we already talked about that. This is the double-minded man. Okay, verse 8. Still other seed fell on good soil. You know who that is? That's you. Or you wouldn't be here on Tuesday night or on Zoom. There's other stuff on TV. Of course, there is no football. But anyway, other seed fell among the thorns. No, sorry, verse 8. Still other seed fell on good soil where, notice, it produced a crop. Now, the crop's going to vary in numbers, but it produced a crop. It produced, may I say, fruit. Now, there's two meanings for fruit. You could say the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Translation, the seed took root in your life and changed you for the better. Okay, so there's that fruit, but there's also the expected fruit is somebody around you that you talk to about the Lord came to the Lord. Now, is that a notch in your belt or a notch in your Bible that I saved Harold over here. No, it's always God that does it, right? But we are supposed to be producing, reproducing apple trees that make other apple trees, if you will. Other believers come to faith because of your faith. This is good, soft, rich, clean soil. Sometimes to get you ready to believe, God's got to clean out your soil. What do you mean? Might take some things from you, prune your tree, so to speak. That seems painful, but God knows until I get rid of these things, you're not going to believe. So he prepares, God does the soil, um, but he, they always produce product. 
Now, is the product that I, I witnessed and four people became Christians. That's my ticket to heaven. No, that's the evidence that you're saved. We're not saved by works, but we are commanded to share the gospel. The key is hearing the gospel. The key to hearing the gospel is the condition of the soil or the heart. So when you're witnessing, don't expect everybody to get on their knees with tears in their eyes and go, I want Jesus too. They might not. They might go, I, I'm too busy. I got a career. I got other stuff going on. I don't want to give up sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I've got other stuff going on. I like getting drunk, whatever the case may be. A lot of people you witness to are going to be not that interested, but you're commanded to tell people about Jesus. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Uh, okay. Some have seen in this these examples, something that you see elsewhere in the scripture, Ephesians 2, James chapter, I don't have it in front of me. Um, well, it's in James somewhere. Anyway, which is, have you ever heard this? What tempts Christians? The world, the flesh, and the devil. You ever heard that? Okay, look back at this list. As he's scattering the seed, verse 4, some comes falls along the path, and the birds came and eat it up. This is the um, hardened heart. It is uh, the, the devil would be that one, verse 4, because the birds snatch it up. Uh, birds, as I said, emblematic of the devil often in the Bible. Verse 5 and 6, some fell on rocky places, didn't have much soil. Uh, shallow faith, that's the worldly person. I'm shallow, I'm into the world stuff, and I don't care about spiritual stuff. And then the flesh is verse 7. Uh, thorns that are growing up, uh, other things are choking it out. In any case, I don't know if that's true, but I thought I would throw it in. The point is, the seed's good, that's the gospel, so throw it, spread it out there. One other thing, don't make genetically modified gospels, right? The seed is the seed. Well, where do you find It's in the Bible, right? Yeah, but when I'm witnessing, I don't ever mention hell, sin, repentance. Um, the person might be a drunk. I don't mention that that's a sin. You're genetically modifying the seed, folks. Tell them the truth. You got to tell them the bad news, what sin is, before they can hear the good news. You got to show them the x-ray showing we got a spot here on your lung before you can show them this is the antidote. This is the cure, if you will. Don't genetically modify the gospel. Preach it the way Christ did. Um, okay, let's keep rolling. We got a few minutes. <laughs> Last thing, whoever has ears, let them hear, means that was really important for a number of reasons. For those who weren't hearing, because some of the people hearing had hard hearts, didn't they? Some Pharisees, some of them were distracted. Some of them were shallow. Verse 10, disciples came to him and asked, why? Why speak to the people in parables? Why do you do that? You used to be so clear. We've been here and you preach. It was awesome. Now it's all symbolic. Verse 11, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been, has been given to you. 
but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables, and he quotes the Old Testament here, though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And, and he's going to quote Isaiah here in the next verse. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. He's, Isaiah's predicting a future time when the Jews, which was already happening in his era, just weren't listening and repenting and obeying, if you will. So he's there to reveal the truth in a veiled way. But he says there, uh, they ask because it's not the clearest form of communication, parables. If you say you know, what do you think about so-and-so? And I say, once upon a time, there were two men. And you're like, oh, here goes the story. And I got to figure it out now. Can't you just tell me? And he's saying, no, I can't. You who believe will understand these parables. Those who don't, won't. And we're out of time. So we'll talk more about that passage again next week, God willing. Got a few more Bible studies, and then we're going to quit in the middle of December and take three weeks off-ish or so. Anyway, if you have a question or comment or whatever, email me. Um, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that somehow you prepared our soil, and you watered it, and you nurtured it, and you weeded us uh, some things out of our lives, and you drew us to Jesus Christ, God, and we are so thankful because we may have been the hardened type or the type full of thorns or the type with very shallow soil, but you changed us. You prepared us. Now, God, the ball is in our court. By your Spirit's power, though, help us to learn the gospel and spread the seeds of the gospel wherever we go, knowing that it's not always going to produce a crop. But when it does take root in fertile soil, it always will. What a wonderful thing. Thank you for our faith. Thank you that the relationship we have with you is higher even than physical family relationships. May we view our sisters and brothers that way, both in our churches and around the world, God. We give thanks for this time and we praise you and we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Thanks of you on Zoom. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time, God willing.